So hello and welcome to the Expat Pod. My name is James, your host, and today I'm joined with Khaled, who we actually met about a year ago, I think, at a training course um, from the IMACI, which is the Institute of Mechanical Engineering. And we just started talking because we have a similar or had a similar field of aerodynamics and just yeah, connected on LinkedIn. But yeah, please, please give us introduction, Khaled. So yeah, hi, James. I am Khaled Takrouri. I am currently, so yeah, we met when I was an R&D engineer. I am currently an R&D tax consultant. So very briefly, I used to do the research and development myself. Now I help people fund their research and development to pursue innovation. I am originally from Jordan and I've been in the UK for the past nine years, more or less. So welcome to section one of the podcast, all about getting there. So kind of, this is where I kind of ask my guests some information of you know what they had to do before they left their home country um, in order to, I guess, sort out visas, sort out accommodation. I guess banking is an important thing as well. Very important, yeah. Get your finances sorted. We're out this year. So, you know, first of all, what, why did you choose to leave, leave Jordan? So I think it was back in 2013, 2014, where I was about to graduate from uh, Jordan University of Science and Technology, and my degree was in aeronautical engineering. Now, there were two things that I would say motivated the move. One of them was that I've always wanted to live abroad. I wanted to get more exposure into a different culture, whether it was from a personal side or professional side. And I was also looking into getting a higher degree. Now, I would say in terms of getting, uh, so potentially at that point, the plan was to go and study in the UK. So staying in the UK is a totally different story. Uh, it has, it used to have much more challenges than nowadays before Brexit. So yeah, the the task was to find something that I was interested in within well, within my degree and then get further education. And, and I was interested in going to the UK particularly because in Jordan, the education system was based on the US system and both systems are fundamentally different. So in the US, it's mostly about doing multiple exams, getting, getting grades and then having like, who's the first on the batch, who's the second, who's the third. In the UK, the system is more hands-on working, collaborative project. So that really improves your soft skills in addition to learning. And also it, it was more the way that I like to work. And that makes sense. So I wanted to work on more hands-on project. I wanted more exposure towards practical application to what I've learned. And so what I did, briefly is that I looked into universities. I was interested in doing computational fluid dynamics. So I did find a course at the University of Liverpool, which was very specialized in engineering simulations. And I applied and got a master's of research. So yeah, after I got the acceptance, I think the hardest bit was getting the visa. And it's it's unfortunate in a way that in order to get, so you might have two very skilled candidates. One of them is from, for example, back in the day, the EU and the other from an Arabic country and the process is completely different. It is, yeah, it is literally, I mean, you could lose the, the position you have got or the acceptance you have got over things that you can't control. For example, in order to get the visa, you have to gather a huge amount of paperwork. You need to have um, a significant amount of money in your bank account for at least 28 days, even if you are going in for a scholarship. And in that sense, many candidates would just lose the great opportunity, although they are fully qualified, just because, for example, they couldn't have the money in their bank account for 28 days prior to submitting the visa application. Yeah. And to be honest, 
prior to Brexit, things were completely different from now in terms of ease and getting positions because the demand was much higher. And the UK is still a very good spot for anyone who's looking to do postgraduate studies, simply because one of the main reasons is the language, because almost every, it's the most common second language. And you'd always have an advantage if you can speak English professionally or or even similar to fluent. And in that sense, it was a very popular destination for anyone to apply and study. Now, when when Brexit when Brexit was on <laughs> I have an extent when Brexit started, there were many m- many Europeans didn't just want to move because it was too complicated. However, for other countries, which were not UK, EU, it was still the same process. So nothing changed. So after Brexit, it became a bit easier to get a position or to get fund or to get to get a degree. Um, but yeah, it's still very hard. You need to provide a lot of paperwork. You need a lot of funds. And I had to do an English test, which is the IELTS where you need to have a minimum requirement, which is, I think, mm. it depends what specialty you're going for, but it has to be at least 6 or 5.5, where it was. Is that, uh, what's it out of? Uh, 7 or 8. Okay. Yeah. There's still so, effectively uh, a high level of fluency. It is a high level of fluency. So, yeah, if when I went, when I moved, the first thing I had to do was to get my eyes sorted because it's valid for two years. So even if you don't get a placement this year, you can still apply next year. And so after I did my IELTS and I secured an acceptable mark, I started applying for the placements. I've got multiple placements and then I chose to go to University of Liverpool. And good my choice. master's was, yeah, it was, it was a very good university. Actually, the whole experience, I would say, was great. Um, a because university as well. My it is. My bachelor's is at Liverpool. Oh, you were, uh, your bachelor's in Liverpool as well. Where I'm from. Okay. So. Yeah. Ah, oh. well, that, a great city. That would have been my, it's it's very cultural and it's very diverse as well. So, yeah, I would say my years, I stayed there for my master's and my PhD, and it was one of the best places that I've lived in, basically. Yeah, just, just for everyone listening, like, I, we didn't plan that, you know, the Liverpool connection would be there. <laughs> it's just a happy coincidence. Yeah, it is a happy coincidence. Yeah. Um, so yeah that was for my master's and after I finished my master's the plan I I did have a solid plan I would say to stay in the UK and after that I was looking for multiple options do you want me to continue or you want to cut it oh no no no, please well I I just have a quick question on um the the English language test of course um was the or is there much kind of resource to help you practice for it? Like, can someone go and find information about it? Yeah, I mean, you can, f- it depends where you are based. But for example, th- there are plenty of resources online and in-person courses where you can, where you can find how to, it's, it's, it's held almost everywhere. So there are centers or you can travel to your nearest city and do the, do the exam. And is that in predominantly, I know this, so this, for me, can get annoying, is that American English and British English, there's a big, there's a lot of differences. Um, there is a lot of difference, but I, I would say it's basic, it's basic English. So. Okay, so they don't, it works, if you, if you pass the assessment for British English, you would also be able to study with the same qualification in the States. Yeah, I mean, for example, in Jordan, most of the English that I studied was based on American English. So, yeah. I'm sorry but, for that. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, yeah. I, it's the, the test comprised of a reading, listening, writing, and speaking modules. And, for example, in Jordan, there was a British council. So, you would you can buy the books from there. And you would do the exams there as well. And is, in Jordan, is English taught from a young age? Or is it something you have to do voluntarily? For, for the most part, it is taught from young age, yeah, in public and private schools. Now, in private schools, it is a bit younger. They start at a younger age, but, yeah, it's taught almost everywhere. 
interesting. Yeah, because obviously that's something that we, as uh, people in England or Britain, struggle with is we don't we don't start languages until you're maybe eleven. Yeah, and no, it's but... too late, I think, to to really. It it is actually yeah because now I think and and Jordan I started learning English when I was five or less. So. Yeah, I think, and it's the same. Uh, I live in Sweden right now. It's a young age people start learning English. Yeah, because you, you're at best, yeah. If you learn it at a young age, it just it wouldn't be built in in your in your personality. It will be in your subconscious, basically. Precisely, yeah, and that's what they say when your brain is more malleable when you're younger. It's a good time to be experimenting with with foreign languages. Um, yeah, something which you know, if I have kids, I would I would try and you know encourage from a younger yeah, age yeah. Is, is, to, is to learn um yeah exactly at least like languages, mandarin yeah. maybe probably yeah. useful. yes and it's also very good to 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 read whether you're reading literature or like scientific information and you usually things read more accurate when you read them in their native language rather than being translated because you've always you always have this slight risk that you will be reading the opinion of the translator in many cases, rather than the original text. It's a very good point, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's um, it would be interesting to see, I, I haven't done this yet, but to understand, like, if, if someone can understand both of, of you know, popular literature, <laughs> the swing of influence that the translator has had, I'm sure there's many things on the internet. Yeah, there's many, yeah, definitely. I might yes. do that when I, when I finish this course. <laughs> Perfect. So then, so you've obviously kind of got, you got your place at university, Yes. You sorted your visa out. Was there yeah. a, did it cost a lot of money to do that or was it funded by the university or by the government? No, uh, no. so when when you come for a master's degree normally you won't get any funds. You might get a discount in certain universities if you have grades above a certain limit. But generally you won't get any funds to get to the university or to finish your course. Mm. Uh, yeah, so usually masters are self-funded. Masters courses are self-funded, at least in my case. Mm. And then the actual teaching part as well was obviously higher. You paid more than the UK students. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I for for example, I did notice in some universities, for example, for business, for an MBA, it's the same. Yeah. So it really depends on the course. In my case, that was the case, but. I don't think I can generalize that on every course. I mean, I think MBA is just another level of expense. Yeah, exactly. Well, I did know, yeah. I did learn that if you're Swedish or you're a citizen here, I think you get uh, for free. Because... So, yeah, there are some countries where you can do a master's for free. I think Germany is the same as well, but I'm not sure, to be honest. Yeah, it's, well, it's just, I'm just jealous. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> but I finished all my degrees, so I'm not jealous anymore. But yeah. no, but it's that bit of debt that I've got, which still makes me jealous. Yeah, you know, it goes out your salary every month. It's uh... yeah, definitely. So, um, what was there anything else you needed to, to think about or or kind of uh, sort out before you left home? So, to be honest, yeah, looking, getting viewings, and getting an apartment was pretty straightforward. At least, at least in my case, because I went for a student accommodation, so I would say it was initially the bills were included. There wasn't any cancel tax, so I didn't have to do a lot of the usual UK paperwork. I had to arrive, uh, pay the rent, and just stay in the apartment. So yeah, I think that during the masters it was not the hardest. But it's what came afterwards. I guess that's always quite a good idea as well. Like I moved into um like kind of a long Airbnb, which you can actually see in behind me. So it's a bit more expensive than what you would normally pay if you found it yourself whilst you were there. But if you're coming from abroad or far away, it can be quite difficult yeah, definitely. To, get, to get into the, the living situation. Yeah, because it's it's totally it's totally different from in between each countries first of all and i mean if for some i mean some some students to get to live on their own during their bachelor some of them this would mm. be their first time living alone so if it's possible to reduce the things that you need to take care of especially at the beginning yeah that that, that would be good especially that doing a postgraduate degree is different from an undergrad so 
your attention, at least at the early stages, should have should be only towards getting your coursework done. Yeah, you hope so. It's not bad. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, on um, on moving then, or yeah. your halls residence, were they in the city centre or were they further out? Was it uh, Greek? So mine was very close to the city centre, actually. Yeah, it and it was very close to the campus, to the engineering campus. Yeah, because we yeah, there was still Carnatic and Green Bank, I think, were the two which were quite. It was it was London Road, if I remember right. Uh, Penny Lane. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Green Bank Road, and then I think Carnatic might be London Road. Yeah, but um, Smithdown is you know quite far outside the city, but I think the, there was a move to bring the, the yeah. loss of the living population of the students close to campus. And and it's I think also one good thing well one great thing about Liverpool is that the the Union of Liverpool was a city campus so you'd find everywhere everything close by at least for engineering so you'd have this nice student vibe to it which can really help you meet people do social activities some in, some other universities are usually scattered everywhere in the city. Uh, and then you'll end up as well living far from the university. So th- that might take away a bit of the overall student experience. Well, maybe you compare the two universities in Liverpool City Centre, John Moores and, and Liverpool. They've got different approaches to the campus. Yes, well, I did do my PhD in John Moores. Uh, I've tried both. And yeah, I would say from a student life side of things, yeah, being in University of Liverpool was was a much better first experience if you want yeah perfect and do you have anything more to add about getting there so no in terms in terms of the masters things were usually straightforward and and to be honest what if you just go to the website you'll check the requirements you check the minimum requirements to enter the requirements to get the visa and what you need to know to arrive there uh I'm not sure if, if I should say this well. As long as you're self-funded, things are usually... Yeah. And if yeah. If the issue is getting the self-funding normal. Yes, exactly. So, and that was, that gets me to what happened when I got my PhD. So, after I finished my master's, I, I started looking for jobs. And because I had a, an experience and a degree in aeronautical and aerospace engineering, it was very hard to get aerospace jobs. And it was... The reason behind that was definitely out of my control as someone who just moved into the country. And that was because for for most aerospace jobs, you would need a security clearance. And to get security clearance, you need uh, five years of valid address. And I've only been there for a year and a half. So there was literally nothing that I could do about it. And that led into starting to applying in the academic world rather than staying getting directly into the industry and from there i started looking into phds because as i mentioned earlier i did a master's of research and during that uh, and the master's of research i mean some people do call it a mini phd because the process is very similar to doing to doing a phd however the scientific impact of the work is not comparable it's much less when you're doing a master's of research instead of a PhD. But because I was mostly surrounded by PhD students in the lab and I did see how they work, what they do, I was familiar with the process and then I started applying for a PhD. And I did get a PhD position in Liverpool John Morse where I studied I did CFD as well. So similar to my masters from a fundamental point of view, but it was a totally different application. Amazing. Yeah. Perfect. Um, right, so I think that's a lot of great information for section one. We'll go into section two. So welcome back to section two of the podcast, all about being there. Now, Kelly, you've given us a lot of information about your life as a student and your how you got to the country and the kind of... Um, methods you needed to or i guess a tool you needed to use in order to help get your places at both your master's and your phd um and the supporting requirements of that with visas and, and the financial support you need as well now this is 
more about your kind of day-to-day personal life and uh, how it felt. So when you landed in the UK or in Liverpool, for instance, you know, what did you think? Because Liverpool is known for its quite strong accent of English. And if you're used to speaking English from a, a foreign country, it's not something you're used to. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the accent barrier in Liverpool, I would say, was was the first thing that surprised me. Because it's very different to every... It's, at the beginning, very different to every other accent in the UK. Now, from my point, from, from me personally, I was used to the BBC British English, English accent, if I want to call it. And I, that didn't surprise me, but yeah, the uh, the Liverpool accent was the first thing that was surprising. Now, to be honest, I was very lucky during my masters because I was part of a lab that had around thirty students, and each two you 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 wouldn't find more than two students of the same nationality. So it was like a cultural every day was a cultural exchange day. We would just sit, talk each of us talk about his country. Whenever anyone is going on a holiday, he would bring some traditional food. We would try it, compare it against to everyone else's food and traditions. So, and this is one thing that Liverpool was was one of the reasons why I really enjoyed living there. There is a lot of diversity there, a lot of nationalities because it's a student city. You would meet interesting people on daily basis so yeah and also i mean both universities did have a lot of social activities also because it's uh, a me a cultural hub yeah the beatles from there so because it's a cultural hub you would see many musicians and artists include liverpool as part of their tours so there was always uh, something to do the food there was great as well. You would see many cuisines, many good restaurants. I mean, yeah, when I was there, go to Bolt Street every month, you'd see any, a couple new restaurants open. Yeah, I miss Bolt Street, to be honest. I mean, yeah. it's one of my favorite streets. Also, because at the top, you've got the Bombed Out Church, which is just a beautiful building, even though it's obviously got uh, uh, a not very happy history. But it's just a scar on the city, which they use and they incorporate so well. It's great for live music and yep. events as well. Exactly. So it's a great um, part of town. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it was a very nice experience overall. And I, I was lucky to be there probably at first, yeah. And so you kind of got past your kind of initial impressions of the city or uh, the Liverpool in general. What's the biggest cultural change that you've noticed, whether it's um, when you were studying or when you were working between your life in Jordan or your life in the UK? So I actually, I didn't work in Jordan before. So I did get my first job in the UK. So I can't compare from the professional side of things. But there are multiple cultural differences, I would say, on the personal social side that, for example, I noticed. And one of the main things and there's no right or wrong here in general leading a social life in the UK or also across Europe things are much more structured than in the Arab world so for example yeah in in Jordan you would just ring someone at 10 at night and they want to go out yeah why not and then just go out this didn't work everywhere when when I moved here so you'd have to pre-plan things book things in advance. So that was one thing that was different. That is the main difference that I I noticed. So shitty. Also, at the beginning, it took me a lot of time to get used to things closing early. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Very good point. Yeah. So things, I mean, I would assume things in Sweden close even earlier than here. They do. Yeah. Yeah. They do. They do. um, Comparing city to city, yes. I think comparing town, like, well, I lived in the Midlands in England, uh, I lived in Leamington Spa, they closed early, but it's a much smaller town as opposed to Liverpool, which they stay open until about 8 o'clock, so like... Yes, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, 8 is late here, so when things close at 8 in, in, in some cities in the UK, then that's good. For example, where I, in Jordan, 
the more if you want to go shopping after work, the malls, the shops close at 11 or at 10. Wow. Yeah, and restaurants, many restaurants stay open all day. So yeah, that was different to me. I had to be more organized because yeah, I get less spontaneous, more organized. And so if you want to go shopping after work, you have to make sure that, yeah, I would leave today at five sharp if I need to get some things done before eight. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and the airport, for example, no, it's, it's different. You can just go at nine, nine thirty, and it's pretty quiet as well. Yeah, and yeah, one other thing that was different, for example, you can get things done in Jordan in twenty four and twenty four hours. For example, you can renew your passport in two hours in Jordan. Oh, really? Yeah. I think How the much fastest yeah. sneaker is one day because I had to do mine uh, in yeah. Liverpool, um, and pay a lot of money for the privilege of it as well. Yeah, but that's the typical uh, in Jordan. But if you want to go, so there's no traditional route and premium route if you want. So yeah, things were much more spontaneous, I would say, in Jordan compared to here. And there's no right or wrong. It's how things goes. But yeah, that was the main cultural difference. I would say that initially surprised me that, for example, if you ask, if you're looking into a service, you would get, yeah, well, we'll get back to you in five working days or in 14 in 14 days and Jordan there's nothing that takes 14 days <laughs> more no. or less yeah oh wow I, I never realized that was um such a difference because like I'm going now to to Sweden and it's slow for what I think because we like we have we always have this kind of this on-demand lifestyle now um and here they don't I don't feel they have it as much obviously people still want things tomorrow but is resigned to you know, things take time right you've got to give people the, the the right amount of time in order to do the job properly rather than hey i want this thing now i'm paying you more money go do it it's like no. but, but it's yeah it's all related to work-life balance because i would say in be in, in some countries people would want would need a, a healthy work-life balance rather than focus on the financials and other places there are people who are willing to do the job is, is, is Jordan got a, a good work life balance in your opinion or? I not compared to here now, so I would say everyone is overloaded with work. Would make you think of America? <laughs> well, it's even worse, I would say. Yeah, well, I can see why you're working here. I mean, there are pros and cons on every side of things, but yeah, the, for example, yeah, the work life balance here is I would say much better than what it was what it was in Jordan, but also. In countries like America, if you work more hours, you'd make more money. Here, if you work more hours, it would be the same. Yeah, it's all salary-based. So. Yeah, exactly. It's thanks, but no thanks. Interesting. And um, my next question is mainly on the kind of social side of things. So how have you compared... Um, I guess it's probably difficult because if you grew up in Jordan, you, you kind of had your friends up until you left, probably from a younger age. But how did you find... I guess finding people to hang out with. So you mentioned about your colleagues in in. So it was mostly, I would say, socializing in a professional context. Uh, but I I wouldn't say that is also much related to the culture. It's also a sort of an age thing in some cases because when when you're kind of younger, you it's easier for you to make friends. You have more time to socialize. To be honest, for for someone like me who wanted to stay in the UK and especially in the early years, you always have the fear of losing your visa or not getting a job. I was very, very much career oriented that I just wanted to finish as soon as possible and get my working permit done. And because of that, because I didn't have the privilege to just decide that I want to stay here I needed to do a lot more to stay here my social life was very very limited I would say that really affected my social life especially during my study period I would say because there is this pressure that you have to for example for my first visa I had I think 16 months to renew it so if I don't yeah, otherwise I'd have to go back to Jordan and then it will be much higher to get a different position if you're not resident in the country that you're in. So I have always had 
this if you want stress that I need to act as quick as possible. So I would say my social life was was very limited because of that, and it was strictly in in the professional context. So going out with people from work, with fellow researchers, after conferences, like we met during a course. That that was the socializing that I did that I did do most of the time. And beyond that, I would say I was mostly working, unfortunately. But you do you have settled settled status now, right? Not yet. So I, I'm very yeah, so I'm very close to getting but I'm still on a working visa. Oh, so I guess once that, that working visa is sorted, will you relax? I mean, it? yeah, to be honest. So so after I finished my my postdoc, things were much easier. So now I do have, I, I'm socializing a lot more. That is because I returned back to doing some music. So I go to a lot of jamming sessions. I meet people with similar interests outside the professional context, if you want, outside the R&D world. Also, there is one very important factor, and that's why you can generalize when it comes to social life. Having a career in research is much lonelier than when you have a career in a client-facing job. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, because usually when you are in research, you would spend your time in your lab, closed door, doing your stuff and then every couple of weeks you would update your academic supervisor or your R&D supervisor on the progress what issues do you have what issues you don't but when you are in a client facing job like for example what I do now there is a lot more socializing there there is a lot of chance making friends or meeting like-minded people because you talk to more people on daily basis I don't know if that answered your question no, no, we did perfectly. I think you very good point. It depends entirely on your on your career choice. You know, your your need maybe for external social interactions. You know, if you if you have quite a, a stimulating job socially, you might crave the sort uh, solitude, I guess, in the evenings just to wind down and have time to think by yourself. Whereas if you're in the inverse, and you know, as engineers. You spend a lot of time, you know, head stuck in work in wind tunnels or uh, in labs or wherever, usually coding or something. Um, you might crave then, you know, going to the pub with some friends or going for a meal with some people or, you know, as you said, joining, joining jam sessions. And, and I play a lot of sports. So for me, it's sport is, is my, I guess, release and kind of where I get my lot. So my social battery gets, you know, recharged. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's also a, a big side of it is whether you are socially an introvert or an extrovert because there are different personalities some people are just more easygoing meeting new people some people are not and I would say especially during my first years I was into the introvert side so part of it was on me personally I wouldn't generalize my experience my social life experience but I would say in general everyone that I met were were very nice so the overall culture when it comes to socializing because it's a very the UK is a very diverse place when it came to socializing I mostly had positive experiences amazing perfect and um is there anything else that you kind of jumps out to you when you think about when you first moved or living in the UK compared to Jordan I mean no those were the the main point if you want and to be honest I did come for a cultural exchange visit to the UK when I was younger. So I did have a little impression. I I, I had the feel of what I'm going to. It's better than what most people say, whether I watched Monty Python or I watched some British television. I know what to expect. Yeah, but no, I, I was in the country. I actually, when I was in school, I came to the UK on a cultural exchange trip and I stayed in that. So that was a typical small English town. Yeah. And Dudley is also one of uh, quite an unusual accent for you to be exposed to. Yes, yes. and I, I was exposed to that accent while I was in school. So that was a, new, a very new thing to me. But still, nothing is as surprising as the Liverpool accent. I mean, I would say the inverse. I would say Dudley is more surprising than Liverpool. But I grew up in Liverpool, so I, I'm, I'm used to it. But for those who don't know, Dudley is, is near Birmingham. And 
quite similar to that accent. Perfect. Well, we should get into section three. So hello and welcome back to section three of the podcast. A part I actually still haven't named yet. I, it's just basically, it's, it's a review. But it just—it doesn't sound as good calling it the review, but um, I might have to. So now this is where it's kind of a a chance for you to, I, I guess, reminisce a bit more about the times, but also offer yourself if if you could go back in time with some advice, but also if you knew someone moving from Jordan tomorrow or or the next few months, what advice you might give them. Uh, before moving to anywhere in the world, but specifically the UK, as that's obviously where your knowledge is based. But let's go to the first part. So, if you could, if you could go back to the moment before you you left home for a few, week, a few weeks, and you could say, uh, make sure you do this, this, and this. Well, would there be anything you would say to yourself, or would you say, you know, let your hair down, enjoy it? Hmm. Well, I would first of all say, yeah, I probably should enjoy the experience way more. So. I, d- I did embrace the cultural difference and the diversity, meeting people from different nationalities, so no regrets there. But one very important thing that I would advise myself is that usually, especially in terms of professional development, we always come with ideas of how things should go. And I would say that if you're moving to a new place, just be open to options and have a chance it's not just about exploring the country, it's about exploring yourself as well. So if you would have told me nine years ago that I would come from being an aerospace engineer who just wanted to know what uh, what aerospace engineer is outside of Jordan to working on a metaverse project related, then working in finance, I wouldn't have believed that that would be the same person. And yeah, one of the... One of the things that was, I would say, different between Jordan and here, and I really liked it and embraced it, is that typically in Jordan, if you have an engineering degree, you there is a very high chance that you would end up in an engineering job or what your hobby was initially. So if you had a hobby and you just made living out of it. But here it's different. You can learn and work on anything you want, basically, if if you, if you have good transferable skills. Yeah, it's a very good point. Yeah, I think engineering for, for me was was more a, a, a lesson in how to learn and how to apply, I guess, problem-solving techniques. So it doesn't matter what the problem is, you, you learn how to logically think and critically think about, hey, I've got, I want to achieve this. These are my inputs. How do I get, how do I get there? The other thing that I would advise or looking back into things that in many cases, usually when when one person moves abroad from any country to, to any other country, so I, I want, don't want to be specific, we tend to stay in our comfort zone. So we'd look for food from the country we moved from. We look for other people from the country we moved from to hang out with. Now, this can be very useful when you're homesick, for example, because everyone would get homesick. But also, you, should, you shouldn't, it, you would lose a lot of the experience if you form a micro-community. It would be a great, integrate for some of the time and then go and be in your comfort zone within a micro-community. Like, so you, you shouldn't do either 100%. There should be a balance because yeah, every culture has will impose some surprises on any person, and you would need to go and speak to other people with similar backgrounds to yours, can discuss it, see how you work around it. But then you you shouldn't be one hundred percent just ignoring where you come, where you came from, and starting a new life. And also, you shouldn't just form or look for a micro community and not mix with with others so there is a balance that i would recommend that everyone find and do yeah that's a very good point i think when i first moved to sweden i had a list of things i wanted to do uh on that was like curling um going to ice hockey matches you know um going skiing which i haven't done 
here yet, which I might try and do next year. Maybe come back and visit some friends. Um, you know, go, trying going to IKEA was one. Yeah, it just well, sounds... you haven't gone to IKEA yet. Oh, I have. I've done that. I did that straight away to buy furniture or buy bedding. <laughs> the the Swedish IKEA, which is the same as the UK IKEA, so it's truly authentic. Um, but just the silly things like that, just lists of like ter- uh, stereotypical you know, uh, things of, of the country you're staying in. Like for you, uh, going to the UK, it might be like, you know, finding a black cab or something. I know, going for a, well, going eating for a fish and chips, uh, watching a Premier League match. Yeah. Did you choose a team, by the way, Liverpool? Was it Liverpool or Everton? Well, I did choose Liverpool. Good. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I actually wasn't really into sports, but I had to embrace the culture because you can't live in Liverpool and not watch at least one match for Liverpool. No, well, my yeah. family all support Everton, and I support okay. Liverpool because I was different. And uh, <laughs> my dad listens to this podcast, so he'll be enjoying that bit. That you know, we are we're embracing the 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 new market of of uh, you know people coming in and being expats. Perfect. Um, and it also is a very good point you mentioned about finding your little kind of homesick remedies. So for me, I was uh, in the winter. Winter was hard, right? I guess for you as well, because you must have come from. A warm winter. I mean, to be honest, no, we do have very. Yeah, this is this is one misconception, misunderstanding about Jordan. We have very hot summers and very cold winters. So, really? Yeah. So it does snow in Jordan. But does and it we do have get the, the daylight change as well? Yeah, the daylight. Yeah, the the change in yeah, we do change the time. Yeah. Mm, but is it substantial, like numbers of of daylight hours per day? Yeah. Yeah. It does okay. change. Yeah. Right. I apologize. Apologies for that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. No, but we do get very cold summers, very hot summers, and very cold winters. And I mean, at one point, the heat wave last year here, it did help the homesickness a little bit. It was very hot. Yeah, one of the people who grew up Well, actually, yeah, well, actually, what I found was very funny is that when it gets extremely hot in the UK, the trains starting being delayed. There's traffic everywhere. In Jordan, when it rains a lot or when it snows, everything is delayed and then there's a lot of traffic. So, yeah, it just in Jordan, not fully prepared for winter. And in the UK, they're not fully prepared for summer. I mean, in the UK, they're not prepared for either, it feels like. You're saying. Like, it, well, comparing it to Sweden, like, they, they can they can run on anything. Yeah. yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I mean, I've been to, to Finland for, for a holiday. The weather is crazy all year, and they're just always prepared. So. I guess you have to be, right? It's, but um, going back to the point of um, finding the home seat remedies, I hadn't, I, because I, there's not, I didn't know many British people living here, but uh, there's a Six Nations in February, early March, and I didn't know where to watch it, so I went on a Facebook group and um, and just asked, "Hey, does anyone know where, where I can watch the rugby?" And they said, "Oh, there's this pub in um, in the city," and it was like a, a British pub. I mean, it was like, "Oh, it's just like I've not heard so many British accents." Like <laughs> that moment, it was really cool. Yeah, and you know that instantly kind of made me feel a bit more at home. Yeah, it does help. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. I mean, I would say the. I did feel that the most during COVID because before we used to go to Jordan more frequently. So I would have the home dose, the strong one every couple of months and then come back. But then when it was COVID, it was around two years that didn't go to Jordan. And how did you find COVID in the UK? How was it like for you? Mm, I mean, it wasn't easy. No. Definitely, but it wasn't. I would say it wasn't easy for everyone. So it was a very unusual time for everyone, whether you were living anywhere in the world. So, but were you still doing your PhD then? I was still doing. So I was partly doing my PhD, and then I did start my first job afterwards. And did you were able to go to the lab and do research whilst you? For the most, no. I um, so my research was most programming based. So mm. I would just stay at home. Uh, I yeah, guess you so, can remote. You can remote. Yes, uh, I was actually yeah doing my PhD remotely a little bit before COVID, so it didn't change the the work schedule, but it did change everything else basically. And and actually that's one of the most things that usually people don't discuss or talk about when they when they move abroad is that 
in a condition like COVID, when you when you live abroad, when airports were all shut, you're just always scared that what if something wrong happens back home? I'm just so far away. And you, but one of the things that if, if you're moving abroad, you need to learn to cope with is to let go of that fear. Yeah. So, because things can get wrong anytime. And on the other hand, you'll also be missing a lot of good occasions as well. But yeah, yeah. One of the things that I would say was the hardest while living abroad is having this constant fear that what if I can't get home when I need to? And I think everyone who lives abroad does have this slight fear within within him. And I don't know how you can solve it, actually. I guess time. Um, yeah. The longer you live away, that nothing goes wrong. I guess COVID went wrong, but... Yeah, exactly. I mean, you become more numb, numb to it, or it just becomes your... Must have, yeah, you become more... And more analytical towards it yeah. so yeah for example you can always leave if you are working professionally like two or three days of annual leave always book without being without them being assigned to a holiday in case an emergency comes up that for example is one way to do things but also if you have a good employee employer sorry uh that they should understand there should be understanding yeah they should be understanding yeah, but it, yeah, it just things that you would you would do in order to make yourself feel better, so to be on the safe side. Oh yeah, definitely. I guess if you've not got the luxury of like term employment, then yeah, to make sure you've got that contingency. Because in the UK, you can always carry days over, I think up to five. So if you've got five less, then yeah. So yeah, I would usually just carry two or three in case of an emergency. Amazing. Yeah, and um, this is a away question but what what was covid like in jordan do, do, do you know much about how it was how is it different to the uk so it, was, it was very similar to, to to what happened here i mean the the lockdown was more or less the same period the airport closed for the same for for the same period things were more or less the same i mean it, it was different from probably like work compensation side of things but because i didn't work here i haven't got much information to compare both in a sense yeah fair enough and um how often do you kind of talk with, with friends and family back home is it weekly or daily or yeah, monthly? i wouldn't say daily it's hard to look to, to catch up with friends and uh, family daily but yeah i'd say on a weekly basis weekly by weekly yeah i guess it's interesting because I, I i my my girlfriend still lives in the uk so we obviously talk daily yeah, definitely. You know, yeah. sometimes hourly. Um, but uh, like my my parents, I speak to every couple of days um, by text, and I phone them probably at least once a week or no, at so, most yeah, every so, two weeks. Which is, yeah, and it does help. Mm, yeah. Oh, for sure. But because I, I guess I'm lucky that the flight's only two hours away, or it's, I looked at it driving home because I have to move out in after summer, and it's about <laughs> a twenty-two hour drive back to oh, Liverpool. Well, That's yeah. not stopping. But um, so you know, but it, it could be a nice road trip, actually. I mean, yeah. that's what I'm yeah, potentially going to have yeah. to do. But um, and also a beautiful way of traveling through Europe. Um, but how how long is the flight back to Jordan? It's around two. so direct. It's five and a half hours. So it's not far. Yeah, it's, it's not bad actually. It's, it's doable. Yeah, I would definitely do. Yeah. But uh, yeah. it's similar to going to New York. Yeah, for example. Yeah. Perfect. And do you have anything more you want to add in terms of advice for anyone who's moving or? No, not really. I mean, it is hard to, to give advice because everyone has, in a way, his own experience. So, yeah, the way I usually like to do things or prefer to do things is I would tell my story. And then if it inspires someone to change something or learn from it, it's better than giving advice because... If anything, my whole living abroad experience taught me is that literally everyone has got different circumstances. And I would be in the lab or at work with your colleague. You're, he's sitting next to you, same position, same job, same qualifications, but very different circumstances to how they reach to where they are. So I would just give an advice that might be beyond 
not relatable to whoever is listening to us, I would tell my story as genuine as it is. And if anybody, if it inspires anyone to to solve a problem or to to take an action, then I would be very happy that happened. Amazing. And if you are inspired, let us know in the comments. Because <laughs> um, that's a good point. Because when I first moved, I started like doing a daily blog of just what I'm doing every day. And some of it was boring, but for me, it was a good way of just creeping down. I've got a nice little, um, it's stopped at Christmas, which is unfortunate, but I have a nice little kind of uh, journal of my time in Sweden. It really helps you reflect as well, because sometimes when you live in the situation, it's much different to when you look at it from a different perspective and reflect on what would you have done better or how could you have sorted the issue oh yeah a thousand percent um no that's great uh um i had one more question and it was about oh yes of course so my question is what or what's your favorite place to visit in england or in the uk have you got a favorite place i know formby beach is amazing yeah formby beach is amazing yeah shout out to liverpool it's one of the best places to be yeah no, it's, that's literally yeah. where I grew up next to the beach. That's where I'm well, it's a very nice place to, to grow up in. Yeah, it's it's one of the nicest beaches, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's the best in the country. But my friends yeah. from North Devon will disagree. <laughs> yeah, no, I would agree with you. Uh, I love Edinburgh. It was one of the best places that I've been to, actually. The uh, islands. So I've been to Inverness one time. It was very nice. Yeah. Uh, but if if you're ever in the UK, you have to see London. That is, I mean, it's it's one of the nicest cities. Uh, it, and I'll tell you why. Because it's very modern and very traditional at the same time. It's a very good point. Yeah. Yes. So there is a lot of heritage to it. Things that, and for, if, if you watch any documentary or movie about London in the 70s or the 80s, 60s, some of the things you'd find the same, but there's also there has been a lot of development going going around. So there is this very nice, if you want, cultural side to it. It still has this traditional bit surrounded by a lot of modern things. So it's it's, it's a very nice combination. It's it's a very genuine mashup because uh, there are. I mean, you could have a. It's just how London is. This is how it was built. This is how it's made. And this is how it will stay. So there is some sort of a genuine side to it. So it might not be everyone's favorite city, but it's worth visiting. Oh, for sure. Like I, yeah. I need, it's grown on me, I think, as a city. When I was growing up, I used to kind of not really like London. Uh, I always thought, you know, like Liverpool's, what, three quarters of a million people, I think, the greatest, the greatest city. Um, London's 12. <laughs> It's more than the country I'm in. And the country I'm in is much bigger by land volume than the UK. Um, but I always felt it really lonely when I would visit because you could see, you know, you could probably see like a few thousand people a day, but not say hello to anyone, which was a bit like, uh, I didn't like that so much. Now, as I'm, I spend more and more time there, you start to build up some friendships and you knew people live there. Plus, you know, if you grow up in the UK or especially internationally, you tend to always know someone who lives in London. Yeah. So you have that that kind of in um, for a social relationship with people and also a tour guide or yeah, some recommendations of things to do. So yeah, that's a very good point you make. But so for, for a lot of people, because you grew up here and London was always from Liverpool, one train right away, many cases you would take it for granted. I didn't go very often, though. Yeah, exactly. You won't go very often. Yeah. yeah. I go a lot more as an adult, but I, I, I lived an hour away when I lived in the Midlands. Um, my girlfriend, let's say, was a tour guide in London, so often went, or often do go with her to, to work, and, and I've got many friends now living in London, so I go and see them. So, yeah, I would say Edinburgh, uh, London, Inverness, and Liverpool. Uh, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you. Cool. So, Khaled, this this might be a bit of an uncomfortable question, but something which I think is still very important. So, is there anything that you've experienced which has been a bit of a negative in, in your eyes? So, but 
there has been, unfortunately. Now, it is part of any abroad experience that you would get things that probably you would perceive as negative, even though if the person opposite you didn't mean it. But in many cases, I would get... So I was very fortunate that I haven't experienced firsthand discrimination because of, for example, anything that I can't control, like where I'm from or what was religious background or anything like that. But there are many questions that people in many cases tend to ask internationals that while you might think that it is a normal question, it can contribute towards their homesickness or their self-confidence or their overall uh, their overall experience in a country. And wh- one of these questions that, for example, ask is you'd go to a meeting and spend some time with with another person talking to and towards the end of the meeting you get asked a question like it did happen to me where are you originally from you speak good English I, d- I didn't know why yeah you wouldn't know why the question is significant no. in that sense because I mean anyone can learn English even if I don't sound similar to what your ear is used to hearing if we can communicate to a good level, then that question should not, if that makes sense, have any impact on the conversation that we're having. Completely. Yeah. So I do, I do understand that it might come from a very good place or just curiosity, but I, I don't think it, I, I don't feel that it's correct to imply that someone is not from here just because he has a different accent to what you're used to hear. That is, yeah. For example, there was another thing that I went through because I do a lot of technical writing as part of my job. I had one one time a report was reviewed and then I got a question where I asked the reviewer, what did you think of the report? And their answer was, don't get me wrong, but I can only write it in one language. Imagine if I write this report in French, how would it read to you? And I thought that was very unusual because in a way, if you can always give advice to anyone, whether he's international or not, to improve, but you have to be specific. Yeah, it's constructive criticism. Yes, it has to be something that he or she can fix, but you can't just impose a criticism on something that I, I can't fix. Well, it's just being uh, a nasty person. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no value added in that statement. If it was, oh, um, you know, it's amazing that you can speak two languages to this level. You know, I can't. I'm ignorant. I'm English. You know, but just, you know, here's some advice on the rewriting for this part of the sentence to make it read a bit better. And that's like, oh, thank you. Now I've learned. Yeah, something. definitely. Yeah. And so, yeah, those are some sentences that you would assume that the person in front of you takes would just hear them as the good way you probably meant it. However, when you are when you work with expats, an expat can have multiple homesickness issues, sometimes self-confidence issue because he's not sure he's integrating or not. And then, for example, this didn't affect me because I heard these comments after seven years being in the country. Mm. But for someone else who has been seven months in the country, that might really affect what he's doing or how he's doing what he's doing or his learning experience. So one thing that, I mean, in many places in, in for example, universities and big companies, you would get a lot of diversity and inclusion training, but there are many other places where there isn't any disability training. And so people would sometimes assume that everyone is the same. Yeah, which is, I guess, it's, it's the ignorant side of it, which it's, it's unfortunate. And I'm sorry that you've experienced no, it's, I'm, things. It's, it's, it's just, yeah, stories that I share because I'm comfortable. 
was showing well, no, them. Really, and one, thank you yeah. so much for being so, you know, so comfortable with that sense. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, there was one, I thought it was a very funny story. I, I was in one of the jobs that I worked for, and there was this person who wanted to know if internationals are eligible to be vaccinated for COVID. And uh, that, that, that was a genuine concern. He wanted to know if I would, I'm eligible to get a vaccine or not. But then when he asked me the question, he said, I don't know what to call you, but do you get vaccine? And that was surprising to me. That we're called internationals. We're called expats. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and surely you have a national insurance number. Yes, we do. <laughs> there you go. You're, you're eligible, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, this is, I mean, some of something, because usually people are very careful about the bold lines, what not to cross. And I mean, I have to admit there has, I haven't experienced any first hand, if yeah. you want to call it, yeah, where a red line was crossed. Uh, but there's also a lot of things under the umbrella of unconscious bias mm. that sometimes do happen that can affect an expat, whether mental health or motivation just because it was said spontaneously yeah, without, yeah, without processing yeah, processing the words before yeah. speaking, before saying them. It's the right intent, but the wrong delivery yeah. is the... Yes. And that's uh, it's great that you bring it up because I think one thing which I want this podcast to help with, I guess, but it also helps me and, and by living abroad, I've gained a lot of empathy for, for people who've moved abroad. Um, and understanding the the difficulties of of you know uh, integrating into a new society, so hopefully that you know will only benefit me for the rest of my life. Of I can always you know hark back to my experiences of of experiencing it. Yeah, and it can also uh, help anyone. So because at one point, even if you stay in a country for ten fifteen years, you will eventually integrate more to where you're living and then even if an expat comes from abroad sometimes the uh, the person who stayed in the country for more than 20 years would, would forget that he was in his place before yeah and then he might just ask the wrong question just because he did he was he didn't experience this yeah getting the same question or getting being told some particular thing that can be a bit sensitive to others. I mean, I, I was lucky that I've experienced those things after my academic period. So I, I, I was fully confident that I did integrate within the system. That makes sense. But for others, it might, it might affect some very important life choices. Completely. To, to them. Yeah. Like, Especially if you if you're quite new to a country and you experience something which you know does take you back or you know really you know disrupt disrupt just your state, then yeah you, you might not want to continue here longer. You look somewhere else for work or for yeah, and 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 a lot of it is usually placed under the umbrella of uh, not knowing or being in some cases unconsciously biased. But if you're always you're con we're now con we are at the, at the stage that we con we know what unconscious bias is and we have to try to avoid it instead of just keep calling it unconscious bias and doing it because it's becoming conscious. Oh yeah, over time. And it's people like oh, uh, sorry, I was ignorant. You know, we we and it's through it's through these kind of stories and these kind of um, conversations. Where hopefully, people will realize or be able to at least highlight the situation before before you say it yeah and so we, we all become more conscious towards what we say and how we say it and instead of saying it and then say oh okay sorry i i was ignorant or i was unconscious yeah well it's also it's it's just systemic issues like um hopefully over time we continue to be a diverse planet i guess you know intermixing as much as possible with everyone else be it remotely, be it physically, you know, the world now is amazing with technology. Like, I'm a different country to you, yet we're having this conversation with the face That works internationally. That can hopefully unlock a lot of a lot of these problems. And, and in many cases, you, you wouldn't be, believe how much you have, because we usually, when, when we talk about, and we did do that during this 
episode is we spoke about the differences, but there is a lot of similarities more than we can imagine that we just take for granted. I mean, it, I met you in an R&D course and the amount of similarities between us, given uh, where we studied, what we studied, what our interests are, is very similar. Completely. I think I, I, I go back to a video I saw, I think it was a viral video of a man. He was in, in the UK, I think, but uh, he was not of UK heritage. And um, he was saying, what do you see? You know, if you, if you see, uh, you, you, can, you can some water up in different coloured cans. You see different coloured cans. If you open it up, it's all the same water. And it's that kind of thing of, you know, you know, people see different genders differently, different, different, you know, there's so many different ways to differentiate, but you look at, we're all human beings in the day. We're all, you know, trying to find food to survive and sleep and yeah, definitely. find, you know, ways to, to fulfill ourselves. And for the most part, we all want the best for each other. We're all kind. We have to be kind to each other and the set of models that we follow are we're basically the same. Hopefully. So, yeah, hopefully, yeah. But we are all, we, we're all hopeful. So. so thank you, Khaled. I really appreciate your time on this. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really had a very good time. Yeah, well, this is one of my longest recordings, I think, because it's just flowed so naturally. And, and the, hopefully I'm getting, well, hopefully it's me getting better at this because it's my 17th one. Uh, but I always need N plus one to improve, right? So, or to be perfect. So, um, yeah, so, but thank you. I, I didn't appreciate the, the climate of Jordan before today. You know, I just completely escaped my mind of like, again, it's my ignorance, being my unconscious bias in that sense of not even, because you think Arabic nation, you think, well, really hot, especially in the car industry where I work. It's always, oh, you know, like. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's usually, the, yeah, people think of the Middle East Arabic nation as the Gulf area. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, thank you for, I guess, expanding my horizons and uh, my knowledge of uh, yeah, clothes. And this is all the reasons why we should all speak to as many people as possible. Because, you know, for us, it's quite extreme difference being from different countries. But your neighbor has got different lived experience than you. So you'll learn something from them. So thank you so much. And uh, as I said, if anyone's enjoyed, or hopefully you all enjoyed it, anyone's found anything of interest or wants to learn a bit more please contact us in the comments i can forward them to Khaled and see if we can respond and, and give some feedback but thank you all and we'll see you next time see ya. cheers <laughs>